So on the show today, Adam Grant, organizational psychologist at Wharton and best-selling author. Uh, he's recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers. And with us is also, of course, my co-host, Rainier Indal, founder and managing partner of Sum Equity. So today we'll talk about the hidden potential. But first, Adam, a warm, warm welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Well, we'll find out if that's true, but I'm glad to be here. And then, um, as you know, I'm truly excited about all, all of our discussions and uh, really happy to, uh, to have you here. And uh, I think a lot of your thinking has been quite transformational in, in my journey as well, uh, especially with your book, Give and Take, and how important givers are, but also that you need to mix it in an organization with somewhere reciprocity and, and also uh, how to rethink things, originals, how to create. So there's a lot to discuss, and I'm super happy you're here. So thanks, Adam. Well, I'm looking forward to some opportunities for me to think again. So I know you won't be shy about challenging some of my assumptions and opinions. We'll do our best. So Adam, your interests span so many areas, like the science of motivation and generosity, original thinking and rethinking and much more. But beneath all that, I'm really curious, what is your passion? You know, that thing that is so important to you that you're also willing to suffer for it if needed. You know, it's funny. I, I always feel like my interests are too narrow professionally, because everything I study is, is human psychology and revolves around the questions of how do we bring out the best in ourselves and in the people around us. And I guess I'm willing to suffer to try to make myself better. It's why I ended up uh, becoming a springboard diver, even though I was afraid of heights. It's why I ended up becoming a professor and started giving TED Talks, even though I had a fear of public speaking. And I'm also willing to suffer to try to help other people. My wife has asked me for a long time, why are you helping this person? You only hear from them when they want something. But it's a little cost to me and it might be a huge benefit to them. And I'd like to try to add value if I can. And I've tried to make fewer of those sacrifices over time and maybe follow my own advice, but it's a work in progress. Your most recent books focus, as, as Rainer was mentioning, on in many different ways on how to become a better self. So for listeners who might not have read them, perhaps you can share just a little, like a key takeaway. Sure. Where do you want to start? Well, give and take uh, originals and also the, uh, the one you had on, on plan B, because we all face uh, troubled times as part of our lives. I guess I'll, I'll start with give and take then, since it was the first. So the basic finding across a huge body of research is that in every industry, in every culture around the world, these three styles of interaction show up again, again and again and again. So some people are givers. They're constantly asking, what can I do for you? Others are takers. They want to know, what can you do for me? And most of us don't want to be that generous or that selfish. So we choose a third style. We're matchers. I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And my big surprise when I studied these styles is that the givers were consistently the worst performers. They were the least productive salespeople, the least productive engineers, but they were also the most productive salespeople and engineers. Givers were overrepresented on both extremes. And so the book was really about what do successful givers know that takers and matchers ought to learn, but also how do you avoid burning out or just getting burned and make sure you're not one of the failed givers? And there's a whole lot we could talk about there, but that was the premise of give and take. Yeah. And uh, I had a very interesting discussion with John Townsend on boundaries and the importance of maintaining boundaries to other people uh, around you. And that's where, you know, uh, people that are givers sometimes fail to put up the boundaries. 
How do you change uh, a person that is too giving? Actually, we need to be more precise about what kinds of boundaries we're talking about. I've, I've found that there are at least three kinds of boundaries that people who are too selfless in their giving fail to set. So there's the question of who are you helping? There's how are you helping? And there's when are you helping? I think the who question is over time, in order to sort of protect themselves, you have to, I guess, givers have to learn to identify, is the person who's asking for help a taker? Or are they more of a matcher or a giver? And if somebody has a history or a reputation of selfish behavior, you do not want to reward that by continuing to help them. You're essentially letting them get away with it and you're draining yourself in the process. I think the, the how question for me is really about being a specialist rather than a generalist. I've seen a lot of givers get in trouble by saying, I'm going to try to field whatever request comes my way. And you end up sort of getting outside of your areas of expertise you end up helping in ways that exhaust you instead of the ones that energize you. And successful givers are much more thoughtful and careful. The boundaries are, you know, what do I enjoy? What am I good at? And how do I make sure I'm giving in those ways? So for me, I had to learn a long time ago to stop giving career advice to strangers. <laughs> like, first of all, if I don't know you, you should not take my career advice. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, I felt really uncomfortable giving people direction about where their life ought to go. I'm like, I don't even know what I want to do with my life. That's why I study other people's jobs. So this is not a good area for me to be trying to help in. What I do love is sharing knowledge from research and connecting people who don't know each other. And so let me try to focus on that and do less of the other stuff. And then I think the when part is the most straightforward in theory and the hardest to practice. It's about saying, I'm not going to drop everything whenever somebody asks for help. Of course, if it's an emergency, I'm going to be ready. But otherwise, I'm going to block out time to get my own work done and then make sure that I have separate windows dedicated for other people. And the, the evidence is clear and consistent that if you set time boundaries and say there are certain periods where I'm uninterruptible, I'm unreachable unless it's an emergency, you end up not only getting more done, but then you have more space available to help the people around you because you're not constantly falling behind and feeling overwhelmed. And then with the originals and people that really move the world, how much uh, of that is, is really your personality that you do? And how are, you, are people that aren't naturally uh, originals, are they able to become originals? I hope so. Otherwise, this is not a useful line of research for most of us. I was actually surprised about how uninformative personality is when determining how original people would be. I thought you, know, you had to be a huge risk taker you had to be somebody who you know, was always starting things early to get the first mover advantage. I thought you had to be you know, sort of single-minded in your conviction and your vision. And the data told a completely different story. If you study successful entrepreneurs and inventors, for example, you find that they're actually more likely to be risk-averse than their peers. And they're constantly trying to avoid failure and come up with backup plans and de-risk whatever options they're pursuing. You find that they are often very late to the party. They even will frequently procrastinate. Instead of rushing ahead with their first idea, they're waiting for their best idea. And it also turns out that they're often sort of unclear and uncertain around what they want to do. And that allows them to keep incubating new ideas. And I, I think this is encouraging for all of us who have ever felt like, I'm not a daredevil. I'm not somebody who you know, has had a eureka moment of, this is how I want to move the world. If you just give yourself a little bit of time and allow yourself a little patience to generate more ideas, you're in a better position then to not only come up with an original thought, but then be prepared to take action on it. And uh, your book, Rethinking. So it sounds like the originals do less rethinking. 
That's fascinating. You know, it's funny. I had looked at it the opposite way, but I'm open to <laughs> rethinking that, which I guess would prove the point of one of those books. I don't know. Here's where I think they go hand in hand is I think in order to do something original, you often have to rethink the assumptions that make up the status quo. So I think about one of the one of the salient examples from originals, Warby Parker. Rainer, as you know, in particular, the Warby founders, one of them was uh, one of my students, and he pitched me very early on on whether I, I wanted to invest in his company. And I declined because I said, you can't sell glasses over the internet. You have to get your eyes tested, and then you have to try them on. This is never going to work. And Warby is now a, a multi-billion dollar company. And I ended up delegating all of our investing decisions to my wife <laughs> because I, I missed the boat on that one. And in Warby's case, like, to get to the original idea of just saying, you don't have to go to an eye doctor to buy eyeglasses. You don't have to go into a physical store. You don't even have to try them on. They had to rethink the way that glasses had always been sold. And I think their willingness to question the status quo very much relied on the skills of, of saying, let's doubt the default. Let's be curious about whether there's an alternative hypothesis that might work. And then let's test that. Let's figure out if we can build a brand that would lead people to trust us enough that they would click a button to get their glasses and instead of having to put them on their face. So that's how I saw them going hand in hand. But I think you're right in the sense that a lot of originals, once they commit to an idea, they are very hesitant to rethink it. And at that point, they do need the conviction to you know, maybe persist when other people don't think there's potential, maybe to, in some cases, try another experiment as opposed to giving up. So maybe there's a mix of rethinking that's necessary to start and to pivot, but then a reluctance to rethink when it's time to, I guess, overcome an obstacle or a hurdle. And that dance is probably pretty delicate. I remember when I founded Summa back in 2016, there was very few investors in the world that really believed that uh, sustainable investments and impact investments would create good returns and was uh, something they should do. So I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, now over the, the last six, seven years, the world is rethinking a bit that we should maybe focus more on sustainability. Well, it's about time. And you were part of that push, right? I've met lots of people, particularly um, in Scandinavia, who have said, I, I, I honestly didn't buy this concept. I've been following Rainer's work. And he proved that this can be effective. Yeah, but then sometimes I think, you know, what do I need to rethink now? Because we've been doing what we've been doing now for some years. And starting Summa, it was not only that we were going to do sustainable investment, but we were also going to create an organization that was quite unique. Both were including people with different backgrounds, because, you know, when you're trying to do something new and lead a new way, you need people with different mindsets. One of our values was radical honesty. I wanted to have an organization where everyone was leaders and entrepreneurs, so uh, an organization without bosses. And you have had some fabulous podcasts on it, and I've listened to them many times. But I still struggle to really make that uh, happen in, in a good way. So um, if you look at sort of a radical transparency, I think most people in Summa, including myself, are self-doubters. So there is an insecurity, so insecure overachievers. How do you create radical transparency in an organization with insecure overachievers? I don't know. I just study this. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've studied organizations that have been able to do it. Yeah, I, I think the most extreme example is Bridgewater, Ray Dalio's hedge fund. And they have a lot of practices in place that are not for every organization. But I've learned some things from them that are applicable to anybody who wants to try to get more toward 
candor. So maybe I'll call out three things that that struck me there. The first one was when you first walk into Bridgewater, they have an iPad where you go through all the, the core principles of the company, just like many organizations do for onboarding. But as you go through each principle, at the end, you're asked, do you agree? So you're invited to challenge their core principles as a brand new hire. And then if you make a, a compelling case that one is incomplete or two are inconsistent, they'll actually revise their principles based on your input. And so setting the tone that you have a voice on day one and you have a valuable perspective to bring as an outsider who's just come in, I think is kind of a compelling first step. Then you get to your first performance review, and this is where the insecure overachievers really, I think, come out of the woodwork. One of the dimensions they evaluate you on is whether you are constructively challenging the people above you. So in order to get high performance marks, you have to criticize your boss's boss from time to time. And you know, if you're somebody who's worried about your standing, you're like, wow, if I never say anything you know, that disagrees with Rainer, if I never dissent you know, when Vesna brings up an idea that she's excited about, then I'm going to get a bad review. I don't want to get a bad review. I want to get promoted. I want to be successful here. So I think knowing that they're actually measured on being transparent is really key. And then the last thing is, I think this has to be modeled from the top. One of my favorite Bridgewater moments years ago, there's this guy named Jim. He comes out of a big client meeting. He's three levels below Ray. And he writes Ray an email and it basically says, Ray, I give your performance a D minus. <laughs> you rambled incoherently for over an hour. It was totally obvious you didn't prepare. This is really bad. Can't happen again. I don't know about you, but personally, I tend not to write those kinds of emails to the billionaire founders that I work with. <laughs> but Ray writes back and he says, Jim, I'm sorry I let you down. And then he copies everyone else and says, please rate my performance on a scale from A to F. Does not get a single A. But if you think about the cascading effect of that kind of leadership behavior, it's profound. It signals to every junior person that they do have a voice. It also tells every other leader and manager at Bridgewater, you've got to be as open to criticism as Ray was on his best day. And I've, I've studied that more recently with Konstantinos Kudaferis, and, and we found in a, a series of studies that a lot of leaders just stop at asking for feedback or criticism, and they think that's enough to get people below them to be transparent. And it's often not, because when you say, like, my door is open, tell me whatever, you know, whatever notes you have, people don't know whether you mean it. Are you going to take it seriously? Are you going to bite their heads off? Are you going to be too busy or too distracted to pay attention? What we found is often more effective is for leaders to go the extra step and criticize themselves out loud and say, like, if I were Ray, hey, like, I got a D minus last week. I failed to shut up. I dominated the meeting. I didn't hear any of the client's perspectives. And I've been told this is something I need to work on. And that way, he's not just claiming that he's open to feedback. He's actually proving that he could take it. So those are probably my favorite steps for encouraging radical transparency. Which ones resonate? Which ones would you challenge? And uh, we had uh, Amy Edmondson on the podcast uh, a little while back talking about psychological safety. And, and I don't feel I've gotten to a score out of, you know, 10 out of 10 on psychological safety in, in summa. But one thing, uh, and, and I don't think uh, what you're describing that we've been able to that everyone in the organization can feel comfortable and safe challenging me. But what I do have, one thing that you brought up when we were in Stockholm, Adam, was to have the, uh, I think you called the disagreeable loyalist around you. Maybe just describe what that is. Yeah, this was a big surprise for me when I was doing the research for Give and Take. So I'd always assume that if you're a giver, you're also an agreeable person that you're going to be nice and warm and friendly and polite. And I found actually that those qualities didn't overlap really at all, that there were plenty of givers who were disagreeable. You know, they wanted to be helpful, but they were critical and skeptical and challenging. And as I gathered more data, I was struck by the fact that it's often the disagreeable givers 
who are the ones who will challenge you, who will bring original ideas to the table, who tell you when you need to think again, because their idea of helping is actually to rock the boat a little bit. Whereas the most agreeable people around you, they're like, I just, I want to avoid conflict. I want to maintain harmony. And I think the motives there are really important. I think if you put in a bunch of disagreeable takers, they're going to be people arguing for their own gain. But if somebody is challenging you because they care about you, if they are poking holes in your idea because they're committed to the mission, that's a really valuable person to hold up a mirror and help you see your own blind spots. Yeah, and, and, and luckily I've had a couple of those around me and it's been extremely important because uh, they tell me where I, am, I need to rethink. And they also give me information that others are, are reluctant to give me. So it's been hugely valuable to have disagreeable givers. But that's at least one area that I'm glad that we have been able to achieve. I love that. I mean, I think if you get a critical mass of disagreeable givers, they become your challenge network. We all have support networks, but I think it's even more important to have the challenge network of, of people who are constantly pushing you to become a better version of yourself. And it's, it's interesting that even in places where you wouldn't expect it, the, one of the best things you can do is, is actually reward those people which signals to the rest of the organization, this is desirable, valued behavior. So maybe my favorite American example is Apple. Most people would think about Steve Jobs and say, he's the last person you want to get in a fight with or disagree with or criticize because you are probably going to lose your job. And yet the Mac team had an award back in the 1980s that they gave to the person who most courageously challenged Steve Jobs. Jobs ended up promoting that person every year. He may not have enjoyed being criticized all the time, but he knew he needed it. And he went out of his way to surround himself with people who disagreed with him. And you know, eventually he struggled with that and got forced out of his own company. But if you fast forward a couple decades, he's back at Apple. They're having their renaissance. You know, they, they released first the iPod and then eventually the, the iPhone and the iPad. And all of those ideas came from designers and engineers who were telling him he was wrong in resisting music, who were telling him, yes, Apple should make a phone. And no, that doesn't mean we have to stop being a computer company. And I think that, you know, in many ways, Apple's renaissance was due to the fact that Steve Jobs understood the value of a challenge network. He surrounded himself with disagreeable givers who saw a better way to advance the mission, even though it conflicted with Jobs's vision. And hey, if you could challenge Steve Jobs, you could probably challenge anyone. Yeah. And uh, it brings me to the, the other podcast on uh, organization without bosses. Because I really, you know, like to empower everyone and, and every new investment for us, you know, there's a new deal team working on it and we should have sort of a non-hierarchical way of, of doing it. But I find that people need to really suddenly look to a leader to make decisions and, and move forward. So there is this insecurity, both on the individual level, but also on our organization and the world level. So um, how do you go about creating an organization without bosses where everyone feels they can be a boss? Well, I don't know that you necessarily want to create an organization without bosses. I think what intrigued me about that concept was similar to Bridgewater for Radical Transparency. If we want to understand you know, freedom and empowerment, let's go to the extreme and find organizations that have said, you know, we're going to abandon a formal, stable hierarchy altogether. And then maybe we can, we can learn from them the same way that if you wanted to become a better skier, you might go to Axel and Shettle for tips, but you're also not trying to become them. I think that you know when it when it comes to maybe eliminating unnecessary hierarchy there's some classic work by Cummings and Blumberg which suggests that self-managed teams outperform leader-led teams under two conditions one is high uncertainty the other is high interdependence 
So if you're in a volatile world where people have to do a lot of coordination and collaboration, a leader is basically a bottleneck who gets in the way. The leader doesn't have all the answers. People are waiting for the leader. They're expecting you know, somebody to give them direction. When they, what they really need to do is you know, try to read the environment around them, figure out what are the sources of stability within the turbulence or where is this change going to take us and then commit to a vision and a strategy together. I think that interdependence and uncertainty went up during COVID and people were looking for direction in the very moments when it was unlikely that one person was suited to give direction. I think that there are probably still ways that leaders can help with that. So I think a lot of leaders kind of had the knee-jerk response of, I don't feel like I'm in control. My employees are lost. So I'm going to start micromanaging. I'm going to show up in all their Zooms. I'm going to give them all these instructions. I don't think anybody wanted a boss to be a micromanager. I think what we were looking for was macro managers. We wanted our leaders to be clear about like, what are we trying to accomplish and why? I had a mentor, Richard Hackman, who is probably the world's leading expert on teams. And one of his clearest findings was that teams needed to know the ends, but they needed freedom to figure out the means. And I think you know, for the research following Richards has pretty clearly said, in a lot of the studies anyway, it seems that it's nice for leaders to try to get involved. But what people really need from leaders is clarity of goals and clarity of roles. <laughs> like they need to know what, what, what are we all trying to do? And what is my contribution to the collective? We use subjective key results in both in Summa and with our portfolio companies. So I completely agree that uh, you set the targets together, but then there you should have freedom to operate and how to reach those targets. So. I do think that there's some radical experiments underway, though, on, on freedom that are probably right up your alley. So I love the Morningstar example, this tomato paste plant, where they are boss-free and they've done it successfully for a few decades. And the one practice I took away from there that I think we could all adopt was for the first year, you basically do the job of your predecessor when you join. Yeah. And then after year one, you get to rewrite your own job description, which is amazing. But they want to make sure that it's not going to ruin the organization. So they ask you to explain how your new job description is better going to advance the mission and also go to the five to 10 people you're most interdependent with and get their approval. And that way we, we have a collective alignment process to say the new job that I want to craft is actually going to be better for all of us. And I came away and thought, why doesn't every organization do that? Adam, do you very often also work as an advisor to different companies? And what do they, in that case, typically ask that you help them resolve? I pretty much retired from consulting and advising. I feel like it's in the middle ground between coming in to give a speech where you know, I'm hoping to introduce people to new frameworks and bodies of evidence that then they can run with, and then actually collaborating on research where we can design a study or launch an experiment to learn something that then we could share the data from and let lots of organizations you know, take something away. I feel like most of the consulting and advising projects I've done, we don't create generalizable knowledge. And I'm also not involved enough to have a real impact. So I've, uh, I've backed off on that. But I guess what I've tried to do in lieu of that is to find out what are the big challenges that organizations are facing and then say, you know, can we do a, a podcast episode around one of these topics? Can we launch a research project across several organizations around one of these? And my hope is on the back end, then the organizations get the insights they're looking for. I think right now, the biggest question I'm getting is how do we keep culture and collaboration alive in a hybrid workplace? Everybody's trying to figure that out. And I don't think anybody has any clear answers yet, but it's sort of the topic of the moment. What do you say if they ask you? Well, my first push is for them to start studying. I love an exercise that the Heath brothers introduced in Switch. They call it find the bright spots. 
And they say, look, you know, in lots of organizations, people try to drive change by diagnosing problems and then solving them. And there's a time and a place for that. But also, if you're, especially if you're in a bigger organization, you have lots of subcultures. Every team, every department has its own norms and its own practices. So why don't you figure out which of your own teams are already doing this reasonably well? That's a bright spot in your organization and you can study it and try to spread it. So that's kind of my process advice for organizations right now is to say not every team is struggling equally when it comes to distributed collaboration or culture. If you see some teams that are really thriving where people feel like they, you know, they know exactly what the values are, they're passionate about them, they feel a strong sense of belonging in their group, go and figure out what's driving that. And then there's probably something you could apply to other teams. So, I mean, a lot of your research and, and books have been focusing on I as an individual, how I can develop, and then some on the organizational side. But if we lift it to the societal level, I don't know what, what your view is, but I do feel the world has become more of a taker than a giver. I mean, we need a society now that's more, that is more giving. We have, we have inequality rising, we're facing planetary challenges, and still people are too focused on themselves. And if you think of the political landscape, which is becoming more polarized, and you see, you know, we can hardly debate now politics, whether you're Republican or Democrat in the US or on the left or right side in, in Europe. So this whole fra- rethinking doesn't seem to be happening. And uh, we need also on a, on a democratic level and a political level and cooperation between companies and, um, and, and politics in how to solve this. We need some original thinking as well on how to solve these things. So what's your perceptive of, of how these the topics are uh, playing out on, on the societal level? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it does seem like there's, there's an increasing shortage of all the things I study that are potentially good in the world. I'm a little bit torn. I think, yes, it seems like there's more taking behavior on the face But there was a World Happiness Report published looking at all the data from 2021. And I think coming out of COVID, the stories I remember were that store in Denmark that had said like $3 for the first hand sanitizer and $97 for the second, because so many people were, you know, hoarding cleaning products. And you thought like, wow, what selfish behavior. Can't believe this. Those are stories that get amplified by the media and on social media because they're rare. If you look at what's common, The world actually got kinder in 2021. So global rates of volunteering, giving to charity, and helping strangers were up about 25% over pre-pandemic levels. What that evidence makes clear is that the default response to human suffering is not selfishness. It's actually care and compassion. And I think that's not a news story the same way that the hoarders are, but it's not a news story because it's the norm. I think we need to be aware of that. I think as far as polarization is concerned, it's real. It seems to have gotten worse empirically, particularly in industrialized countries. There is, though, a perception gap. So the U.S. data, I think, are are really interesting on this. Democrats overestimate the extent to which Republicans object to their values. And Republicans overestimate the extent to which Democrats object to their values. We see this, for example, really clearly on guns, where you know everybody thinks the other side is, is completely wrong. And yet, roughly 90% of people agree on you know, basic principles, like we should have universal background checks. We should ban semi-automatic weapons. And political party has no bearing on that. So I think that the polarization masks maybe a misperception that you're seeing the worst extreme of the other side. And most people are, are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And we need to find a way to amplify the middle. We need to find a way to make the nuances and the complexities and the shades of gray in people's views more visible and worth talking about. 
as opposed to just getting outraged about the rare extremes. That's good. So you're more hopeful that we are on a society level moving in the right direction. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. I'm hopeful that we can move in the right direction. And I'm hopeful that there's there's already movement happening that we overlook. So Adam, your new book called Hidden Potential is coming out in October about how to improve at improving, actually. And I read that it's really focusing on the habits, not of superstars, but rather on anyone, how anyone can rise to achieve greater stuff. I'm really curious about that. I know that you can't talk very much about the book, but is there anything you can say as a teaser in terms of how we can all elevate ourselves and others? So one of the most important things that I've learned is that a lot of people, as they start to improve at any skill or task, they start to get a little complacent and they feel like I'm a lot better than I was last year and I'm getting lots of affirmation. And they basically stop looking for ways and reasons to grow. And that leads a lot of people to stagnate or to plateau. So I found, for example, as I started to partially conquer my fear of public speaking, I went from you know people giving me suggestions for improvement to just, I would finish an event and people would say, great talk, really enjoyed that. How is that helpful to me? It's not. I didn't learn anything from that. Like, thank you for stroking my ego, but I'm trying to become a better speaker. And what I found was really powerful was I originally would just start asking people for feedback and I got nothing. And then I had to shift and start asking for advice. So my question became, what is the one thing I can do better next time? It turns out people are more willing to give you feedback and they also give more constructive suggestions if you ask for advice than if you ask for feedback. Feedback is backward looking. It leads people to to look at what you did wrong, and then they have to figure out, are they comfortable criticizing you? Advice is forward-looking. You're not judging what I just did. You're telling me what I could do better tomorrow. And so when I ask people, what's the one thing I can do better, I find that people do generally respond. Sometimes it's really minor, and I'll say, like, is that all? Like, Come on, surely you have something that's a little bit more substantial. And then if they really hesitate, I've found it helpful to say, well, let me just tell you, here are my notes. I rambled too long in one of those answers. I really need to shorten that. I think I hesitated to share my personal experience and I was you know, stuck on the evidence the whole time, which is my job. But part of my, I think my role here is to try to illuminate some of the data with how I've applied it and how I've learned from it in my own life. And I failed to do that here. And then that allows me to do what we were talking about earlier, which is to signal, I really do want to learn and I'm very comfortable hearing what I can do better. And I'm going to show it to you by, by you know, telling you what I thought I could do better. And then you can agree with that. You can disagree with that. You can add your own notes. And I think this idea of asking people for specific advice about how to improve might be the most practical thing I've learned about how to improve it, improve it. So it's the hidden, it's always, uh, let's say my hidden potential. Is it hidden from me? Or is it that it's hidden from other because I don't develop the potential that I really know I have? I'm interested in both. And the, the book is very much about both. I think we're often blind to our own potential because we focus on our starting abilities too much as opposed to seeing the growth that we could achieve. So I remember, for example, when I started speaking, I looked at great speakers and I thought, I'll never be that good. I, I remember in particular rewatching the Martin Luther King Jr. I Have a Dream speech and reading that he was 34 years old when he gave that. <laughs> nope. Not going to happen. Like I could practice this every hour of my whole life and never get anywhere near MLK level. What I didn't see was like, there was lots of room for me to improve from where I was to where I wanted to go. I think we do the same thing with other people. We judge people by whether they seem to be prodigies, uh, whether they seem to be naturals. We're looking at their talent as a signal of their capability, forgetting 
that ultimately talent is not the most important driver of growth. The most important drivers of growth are motivation and opportunity to learn. And so if you can light a fire and then you can give people you know, some oxygen, all of a sudden they end up doing much greater things. So I'm hoping that Hidden Potential will help people recognize their own prospects and also maybe see the promise in others that they've overlooked. I'm sure you, you have discussed it with your friend, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, do you agree on, on sort of how to develop your potential? We're actually going to debate that in October. So I'm, I'm curious about where he'll land. He's, he read an early version of the book and, and sent me a lot of helpful feedback. And I know he's rethought the 10,000 hours concept from Outliers. I cover a lot of evidence in the book about different tasks and also different people require different numbers of hours. And it's much more the quality of practice than the quantity that matters. And I think he's come around on that, but we're going to have to find out. Excellent. Look forward to it. So Adam, what is the most important thing leaders should focus on right now, do you think? Most important is hard. There are a lot of things I'd love to see leaders do differently. But if I could pick one, I think my biggest fear coming out of the pandemic is that it seems like we had a, a bit of a mental health awakening in workplaces around the world that a lot of bosses suddenly realized, my job is not just to manage your performance at work, it's to make sure that you actually have well-being in life. And that, of course, over time, that has huge consequences, not only for your performance, but also whether you stay or leave. Cue, you know, great resignation discussions of all of a sudden talent has power and your stars are the, the quickest to leave because they have the most opportunity elsewhere. So if you burn them out, eventually you're going to push them out. I think my worry is that this awareness is going to fade and that, you know, as it doesn't seem like we have a well-being crisis anymore, leaders are going to forget to check in on how people are doing personally. They're going to forget that mental health is part of health. And so I would encourage leaders to recognize that burnout cultures can achieve high performance in the short run, but in the long run, they bleed talent. They ultimately lead to more errors and lower quality work. And it's hard to run a sustainable, successful organization where people are just exhausted to the brink. I personally believe that one very high form of intelligence is kindness. And there is ample evidence that also teaching kids kindness to be helpers actually prepares them for success, as you've also studied. But yet, I think many of people often see kindness as a weakness. Why do you think that is? People over-index on examples of someone getting taken advantage of. And they say, look, if you're, you know, if you're too kind, you're going to be a pushover. I think what they fail to recognize is that there's nothing about kindness that requires weakness. I think that as long as kindness to others goes hand in hand with self-respect, it becomes really easy to set boundaries. You can also very kindly say no to someone, right? So a lot of people will stereotype sort of a giver as, as somebody who always says yes. I say no probably hundreds of times a day at this point. I just actually came across someone who set up an alert on their computer every time they say no so that their colleagues can hear that they're rejecting someone. And that doesn't require a lack of kindness, right? I try to say no really kindly. I have more requests um, and more people reaching out than I can possibly squeeze into my life. And I feel a responsibility to prioritize the, you know, the people and projects that are going to make the greatest contribution. And so a simple example is I get, a, I don't know, several hundred per year people asking, will you write an endorsement for my book jacket? And as they started rolling in, I realized I can't do them all. I can only endorse you know, books that I read in full. And I need to make sure that that doesn't become a full-time job for me because that's not my dominant way of contributing to the world. So I wrote up an FAQ document and I said, listen, due to the sheer volume of requests that I get, I'm only able to deliver on about 5% of these. You know, In order to have a chance at reading your manuscript, I need to get it at least two months in advance. 
And here are my criteria for what I prioritize. Uh, I try to prioritize uh, first-time authors. I try to prioritize people who are doing evidence-based work on psychology or human behavior because that's my sweet spot. If you wrote a novel or a children's book, they're probably not the best person to write your endorsement anyway. And I think people realize really quickly, you know, I'm not rejecting them. If I say no, I'm not judging their work unworthy. I'm just trying to stay afloat, basically. And so I think, you know, recognizing that no can be done kindly is probably a skill for all of us. We did a podcast some time ago with a professor at INSEAD. Uh, his name is Gian Pietro Petrilieri. And he talked very much about the connection between leadership and love. Uh, so leadership is a kind of love. And as such, you know, there are better and worse versions of, of it, of course. And some are passionate, but possessive and maybe controlling. And maybe others are more like caring and generous and actually liberating. But if we want to get better at leading, then we need to get better at loving. What do you think about that? I think it's really interesting. I, I used to debate this with my colleague Sigal Barsaid, who published some fascinating research on what she called companionate love at work. And I agree with this sentiment. I'm not on the same page on the semantics. When I think about love, I just, I think too much about either romantic love or a family. And I think those metaphors are more than a little problematic at work. Your workplace is not a family. You know, I think parents don't generally fire or furlough their kids when they underperform relative to expectations or when finances get tight. And I think it leads people to have unrealistic expectations about the kind of support they're going to get in their workplace. I think instead of love, I prefer the language of care and community. I want leaders to make human well-being a top priority, at least as important as performance. I want to see a community built where people say, I'm going to be treated with respect and dignity. That doesn't mean that I have lifetime job security. So Adam, what do you think the world needs most right now? I think a lot of people say empathy. I'm going to say compassion. The research on, on this by Paul Bloom and others, I think, has, has taught me that empathy is feeling other people's feelings, and it can be a double-edged sword. It can lead you to help the people whose feelings you have an easy time relating to, but not people who don't belong to your culture. I think you know, we see, for example, empathy is more effective in leading people to help in-group than out-group members. It's problematic because often the people who feel the most empathy are the most overloaded by it. And then instead of reaching out to help others, they have to manage their own emotions. And I think it's much more sustainable to have more compassion than more empathy. Instead of feeling other people's feelings, all you have to do is notice and care about their feelings. And that makes you more likely to respond and try to alleviate whatever distress they're experiencing. So I'm not going to say we should erase empathy. I don't think that's realistic or effective. I will say I think compassion is more important and more sustainable than empathy. Rainier, what do you say? What does the world need most at this time? Well, I, I was glad to hear that Adam thinks that the world is becoming a little bit more giving because uh, I, I do think we need that and we do need some rethinking. And um, what's your advice to young people, you know, when they're making now choices to design their life work? The factor that I see overlooked the most is, is learning. I watch a lot of, you know, my own students graduate and ask, how do I choose the job that's going to get me the most status? or that's going to give me the most financial security and stability? I don't think those are unimportant questions. I think we all want to be respected. I think we all want to be able to take care of ourselves and our families. But when deciding between different jobs, asking which one is going to stretch your skills the most, where are you going to get the most dedicated mentoring, that's an investment in long-term career growth. And I think it's often not on the radar because people don't know how to quantify it. They're not exactly sure how to measure the learning potential of a job or of an organizational culture. And I'm not entirely sure either. 
But I think as you, you know, as you start to look at what are the different ways you're going to be challenged, what are the areas of expertise that you might have a chance to develop? I think an organization that invests in, you know, in both depth and breadth is great. I think also an organization where more senior people are available, not just to talk to you in a mentoring sense, but actually to watch you do some of your work and coach you. I think that's probably a leading indicator that you're going to grow. And I think in the long run, the people who grow the most end up contributing the most. Great input. And finally, what do you want the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this very episode? Well, that's for you two and your listeners to decide. I don't know what the main takeaways are. I feel like so much of my job is to almost be like a chef where I'm creating a tasting menu. And now you know what dishes are out there and you can choose which ones you want to go beyond sampling. Well, I think the red thread in, in a lot of what we've talked about is, is uh, the ability to grow and change. We're not formed as one individual who doesn't have the ability to change. We can rethink, we can grow, we can find our hidden potential, although we have to wait to October to figure out how to do that. Your potential will remain hidden for August and September, for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, so uh, it's truly inspiring, uh, Adam, to read your books and, and hear your advice and, and thinking. And really, the, you know, I think you inspire a lot of people to think more about how to grow and how to develop. At least you've done it with me. So I'm truly grateful. I'm truly grateful that you said yes to be on the podcast. So thank you very much for that. Well, I'm honored to be here. Appreciate the encouraging feedback. We'll try to live up to it in the future. But really, I'm just being a matcher here because your audience probably doesn't know this. But Rainer, we, when we did our, our episode on how to become friends with your rivals on work life, I wanted to learn from the greatest of great Norwegian skiers and you were the one who connected those dots and uh, brought me Axel and Shettle, who I learned a ton from. So I'm just trying to reciprocate your generosity. <laughs> thank you. Fantastic. So Adam, thank you so, so much. And thank you, Rainer, also for an amazing and very, very valuable conversation. Thank you. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.